Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. approach the Christmas season, the coming of the birth of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, the question comes up in my mind of why did he have to come? Now, I know the answer, so to speak, is he had to come and bring salvation, but sometimes because of my, I don't know, curiosity, I reckon, I asked a deeper question of that. In other words, dig a little deeper. What would cause him, what would be the need for him to come? So if you will, take your Bibles and turn to Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, chapter 1. We're going to start verse 6. And the substance here is Malachi, God is talking, Malachi and God, God, of course, telling Malachi what to say, is talking to the priest of the temple, but also to the people. And in our case, he's also talking to us. So, I was thinking about this, and I was studying a little bit, and it came to me, what was the state of the people in their worship? And Malachi is a book that addresses that, and he does it through 23 questions. As we go along tonight, we go ask one of them and cover it. But the interesting thing about Malachi is basically the storyline starts all the way back in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, we all, I think, know about the fact that the Babylonians came and conquered Jerusalem and took away everybody and made them slaves, and they moved all to Babylon, and they took up residence there. And, of course, when Ezra received word from God that it was time to go back, he only took about 40,000 with him. So if we assume that the people that were carried away were a large population, that was just a fraction of what the people. And what happened, of course, is the people got to Babylon, 
and they built them places to live and businesses, and they were carrying on commerce, and they had pretty well instigated themselves into the society of the Babylonians. So most of them didn't really want to come back because they would have to give up everything they had to get back. So that was Ezra. Now the people that went, built, started work on the temple, and then when Nehemiah came along and God sent him, they built the walls and finished up the temple. But in actuality, they didn't complete the temple. They just finished the building part of it. And you have to go all the way to Haggai, which is the third Bible from the end of the Old Testament, to pick up the story to carry it on until you get to the end. Haggai urges the people to finish the temple and worship God. And then Zechariah, which is the second to the last book, commences on encouraging the people, urging the people, telling them you need to finish the temple so you can worship God. Well, in the preceding years, the worship of God had failed to the wayside. So it sounds like today, don't it? A lot of people don't want to come to church. A lot of people don't want to worship God. Well, you see, we ain't much different than what the Old Testament was. Society pretty well says, well, what good is church? Well, the people at this time frame in Malachi were saying the same thing and doing the same thing. So as we study here, starting in verse 6, we go see what God has to say. Now, the people are under the assumption that God hasn't done anything for them. But God starts his speech or conversation with them in verse 2. He says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. And then this is God speaking. Yet ye say, where hast thou loved us? In other words, the people were answering him back. The priests were answering him back. says, you say you have loved us, but where have you loved us? Show, show us something. Where have you shown this? And God comes back. You see the question and answer. God has come back. And he says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord. Yet I loved Jacob. And then verse 3, I hated Esau, and I laid his mountains and his heritage waste with the dragons of the wilderness. And what God says, what do the people, the Jewish people say? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So if God loved Jacob, look what he has done for the people. But they say, what have you done? Well, then he uses the example of Esau where he prophesied that he would destroy Edom, which is the country that were basically the people of Esau, and it came to pass. What happened? Well, the Babylonians, when they came to Judah and Israel to destroy it, they just went on down south and conquered and destroyed completely the nation of Edom. So, with all that done, God's saying, listen, this is what I did. I loved you. I loved Jacob. I love Israel. I love Judah. 
But the people are saying, I ain't seen no indication of that. Well, then God comes in verse 6. And he says, A son honoreth his father, and a, son, and a servant his master. If then I be a father to you, where is my honor? Well, see, you know, you know the Testaments. Honor your mother and your father. And the people honor their mothers and fathers. Well, they probably did. And a servant or a slave would honor his master because he'd be afraid of what the master could do to him. So if you're going to do a human aspect that way, treat a father or a mother or a master with respect, and God is the father of all of us, how can you not show respect and honor to him? And he continues on. He says, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Said the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest. Okay, so we see right here that he's talking to the priest. Now, this is a... Uh, let's see, what word do I want to use? This is a gig or a poke or whatever you want to call it towards the priest. But it also applies to the preachers. Because we're in the same category. How important is it for the church and the nation of Israel to have somebody in leadership that's leading you in worship towards God to be doing it the right way and the correct way with total respect for God. Preachers are basically required to do that. Priests were also required to do that. Yet he says here, O priests that despise my name, and ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Okay, another question, another answer coming up. So the priests are saying, where do we despise your name? Where do we, you know, what are we doing that, that fails to satisfy everything? Well, basically the priest, the audience here, objects and they fail to see where they have fallen down. They fail to see where that they have despised or rejected God in any way. Well, God comes in verse 7 and he says, well, to start with, you offer polluted bread upon my altar. Okay, so I'm going to take it that <clears throat> you may know, but I'm going to reiterate it. The priest's duty was to bake new bread every single day. And put that bread on the bread of the altar of bread. In other words, every single day with a fresh loaf of bread or more on that altar. Nothing could be left. In other words, at the end of the day, all that bread was taken off. And then the next day a brand new set of loaves. And it just every day, every day, new, new, new. The best, the best. 
made out of wheat. If you go back to Leviticus and so forth, it was the best flour, the best of everything. Yet here they are, God saying, is you put polluted bread on me. Well, the only thing I can think of polluted bread was what he would consider maybe. I may be wrong. You can decide for yourself. They probably left day-old bread on there or whatever. Then he says, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say the table of the Lord is condemned. <coughs> Excuse me. Condemnable. They're just, it's, it's got to be where, okay, we'll just get by doing the least we can do. And if, if the bread's on there for two days, that's all right. Uh, it makes no difference. God doesn't care. God doesn't mind. It, you know, it's, it's, We'll do what we want to do. And <clears throat> why are we even doing this at all? And it's that attitude that the priests have. They're defiling God's honor. Verse 8. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? And then God says... Offer those sacrifices to your leaders, the governor. Okay, so Herod was the governor back then. Can you imagine taking day-old bread or two-day-old bread and a, a sacrifice of a lamb that's crippled, blind, or whatever the case, uh, and giving it to the governor? Reckon how long you'd last. Not very long. Yet here is just a man, a governor, a human, and, you know, he's going to reject it. He wouldn't eat it. So, you know, back then the rulers, they ate the best. The finest meat, the finest bread, the finest wine, they had the best. They didn't want nothing less than the best. So if we go do a human that way, and you're doing God this way, can you blame him? Can you blame God, the Creator, our Lord and Savior, from any of this? You see the condition that the worship has gotten into because of the priest? Can you imagine and understand why God despises the priest and the, their way of worshiping and leading the people to worship? Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, if you took that old stuff to the, uh, to the governor, to Herod or whoever, and would they eat it? Of course not. They might have you killed for bringing such stuff to them. And then in verse 9, And now I pray you beseech God that he will give gracious unto us, that have been by your means, he will he regard your person, say the Lord of hosts. Well, what he's saying here is basically, if you go treat God like this, do you think God's going to respond to your prayers and your requests and your desires? Or do you go think that you go get things done and pray to God and say, God, help me in this situation or do this or whatever the case, and God's going to listen? 
Why would he listen? Why would he do this? If you're despising him, if you're not worshiping him in the correct procedure and the correct way that he wants to be worshipped, and you can go back to Leviticus and all those books and find out exactly he told the people, this is the way you got to do it. And they're not doing it. Why? Because they're lax. Because they have gotten in the, in the situation of, well, I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just going to go through the motion, get it done. Well, is that any way to worship God? Is that any way to worship Jesus Christ who died for us, who brought salvation to us? Is that any way to worship the one and powerful, mighty God? I think you can answer that yourself. No. And then it comes to verse 10. Now, verse 10 is the dividing line between verses 6 and 9 and 11 and 14. He's talking to the priest. He says, Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Okay, what priest, what preacher would shut the doors of the church to keep this type of worship from even taking place? Who would do that? Who would step up and say, No, we ain't going to worship like this, and I'm going to shut the doors, and we're not going to have worship, and we're not going to open the doors? Until we get it right. Wait, nobody there. Neither do you kindle for mine altar for naught, kindle fire. And of course, what he's referring to here is Leviticus chapter 10, and I'll read it for you. And Nadab and Abihu the sons of Aaron, and this is the Aaron that's the brother of Moses, who is the high priest, took either of them his censer, which is where they did the incense, fired therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And then verse 2 says, There went out fire from the Lord, devoured them, and they died before the Lord. So God's saying, it's the same thing you did in Leviticus. You're bringing stuff that I don't want, it ain't worth, that ain't worthy of worship, it ain't worthy of me, I'm your God. You're just doing stuff that's totally off the wall. Is there no one that will say No. We're not going to do that. And then he says, I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts, neither will I accept an offering at your hand. So that's getting pretty rough. All these folks had back then was offerings. There's no other way to, to get to any situation without an offering. Now Amos... Chapter 5, verse 21, here's what God says. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies, 
Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, and I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. God's basically telling them, you're wasting your time. I ain't going to accept none of it. So how we go get a hold of God? If he ain't accepting none of the worship, he ain't going to accept none of our prayers, I think we're in bad shape. So then God tells them, here's what the situation is going to be. You, Judah, you priest, you people who worship me in this way, I'm going to raise up somebody. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Praise God, folks. We're the Gentiles. God said, if Jewish people are not going to worship me like they ought to, the Gentiles will. And in every place incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. So God says, you Jewish people, you Jewish priests, if you ain't going to worship me like I want, I'm going to go to some other folks. And praise God that he came to us and it included us in it, included us in his worship, included us in the fact that we can come, worship, praise, and honor him in any way we possibly can, by doing whatever we can in our abilities to do. Verse 12. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. They're bringing blemished offerings, sacrifices. If you go back and study where God told the people what to bring to him, he said, I want a male lamb. I want it unblenished. There should be nothing wrong with it. It should be perfect. should be the best it is, the best you got. That's what I want you to bring. So what were they bringing? Blind, lame, crippled. They were bringing the stuff, well, I don't want that. I need to get rid of that. I'm going to carry that instead of the best I got to worship God. And they're polluting the table, the worship table. And the fruit they brought was probably day old or two days old or maybe be worse than that. It's just contemptible, contemptible. I can't even talk tonight. It's just ridiculous. This is God, folks. The God who created us, who brought about salvation for us, who is going to bring us into eternal life. And we need to worship him with the best we got. Fortunately, we don't have to bring animals and stuff like that. We can just show up and worship God and praise him for what he does in our lives. Verse 13, ye said also, Behold what a weariness it is. And ye have snuffed at it, said the Lord of God of hosts. And ye bring that which is torn, lame, and sick, thus bringing, just brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, said the Lord? 
Well, I can see from my personal experience where some of this is coming from. We get tired, don't we? And we think, well, man, I'm tired. I don't feel like going. I don't want to go. I want to stay home. I want to do this. I want to be lazy. And y'all looking at the laziest person you've ever seen because I sure don't like to do nothing. I just soon sit in my chair and just kick back. But the Lord doesn't let me do that. He knows me. He knows me well. Now, as far as bringing a, something that's not worthy of the Lord, that's up to each individual. We bring what we got. We bring what we can bring. We bring ourselves. The only thing I have to offer to God that's really worth anything is my service. And that's the only thing I really can offer him. So then verse 14. Be cursed, but cursed be the deceiver which have in his flock a male. See, that's where he wants the males. He don't want the females. Nothing against you ladies or nothing, but it's the fact that what's more valuable? If you have a herd of animals, usually you got one male and maybe a few females. If you take the male away, you just got a herd, so to speak. See, he wants the best. He wants something that really is worth something. He wants to see that you're really dedicated to be the person that he wants you to be, to bring the best you can. And vowed and sacrificed unto the Lord a corrupt thing, for I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. God desires us to do what he desires for us to do. There's certain things that he has laid out. One of them is we come and worship. We be together. We come as a, a family, a church. We come together and we worship God through singing and fellowship and preaching and teaching and whatever the case may be. And when we do any of those aspects, we need to do it to the best of our ability. Because God is worthy of our ability. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you this day. We thank you for everything you're going to do and everything that's done and everything we can look back on and say, well, there was God. He was working. We look forward to the day we stand before you. We pray, Jesus, come on. Come and get us. Care us to be with God and you and the Holy Spirit that we may stand there and worship and praise and honor God for his mercy, his grace, and his salvation that he has brought to us because he didn't want us. He loves us so much. He loves us more than we can comprehend, more than words can state. He loves us. He cares for us. He looks after us. And sometimes even though we don't see it, he's there working to do what he needs to be done. Use us, Lord, for your glory and your honor. And we do this in Jesus Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.